Well, as I said at the beginning of the service today, we're starting a new series, a study of Paul's uh, first letter to young Timothy, young pastor. And we're going to cover six chapters in six weeks. And while I'm not going to be able to go into great detail unless you want to stay here until noon every Sunday for the next six weeks, it does seem necessary, at least at part of an introduction, to talk a little bit about the, the who, what, where, why, when, and how of this book. Uh, now, First Timothy shows us uh, what it looks like when a church goes off the rails. And, and believe me, churches go off the rails from time to time. And the question is, how do you get it back on the track and get it going in the direction where it needs to go? Well, part of that, it takes a body of believers who are equipped properly, scripturally, to help do that. And sometimes what it takes is somebody like Timothy to walk in and say, folks, we ain't doing it that way anymore. We're going back to the Word of God, and we are going to do it, and we are going to do it right. So, now prior to writing 1 Timothy, uh, Paul uh, had left his apprentice Timothy in Ephesus uh, to instill some sound teaching and some sound practices. It kind of seems that the church leaders in uh, Ephesus after Paul had departed were focused not so much on proclaiming the word of Jesus, but were rather kind of promoting and protecting their own privileged positions within this church. Now, Paul was always uh, concerned that hindrances would somehow stop the call of a church to be about God's mission. And so he wanted the problems in Ephesus to be resolved so that there would be no, um, uh, no obstacles to the gospel. So 1 Timothy is going to show us the power and the need for what I would call Christ-focused teaching. And I, I pray that that's what we're doing here at Restore. I know that's what happens at, at Praise and Worship. And I pray that happens really in every church that puts the name of Christian on its door in some way or another. Uh, and that there would be no obstacles to this gospel. Now, 1 Timothy shows us this power and this need for Christ's teaching because it's going to lead us uh, to three different things. It's going to talk about having good conduct, uh, about uh, peace in the advancement of the Lord's mission. Now, false teaching, on the other hand, um, leads to conflict within a church. Maybe some of you have actually been in a church where there was some false teaching taught. And the next thing you know, the church was no longer a church. It was several churches. Uh, I heard of a church one time down in Kentucky where they were going to buy brand new hymnals. And they couldn't decide whether to buy uh, red ones for the blood of Jesus or white ones to indicate that their sins were washed away like snow. And so they couldn't decide. And the church split. They actually sawed the church in half and shoved it sideways on a foundation. And there today they worship in two different churches split with different colored Bibles and hymnals. Crazy. So Paul is writing this letter to this young church leader, this Timothy guy who had grown up. If you read the story about Timothy, he had been raised by a godly grandmother and by a godly mother. Uh, we kind of think he's about 20 or 30 years old, and he is now this kind of new pastor in this church that's got all kinds of problems. Now, I was reflecting on this as I thought about the churches that I've pastored in my life, starting back at Emmanuel in uh, Belvedere, Illinois, and then at Trinity in Bloomington, Illinois, and then back at Lord of Life in La Fox, Illinois, and then, you know, on down the way. Uh, I can't say that I've been in a church that needed to be put completely back on the tracks, but there have been times when we had to kind of stop what was going on in some cases 
and get everybody back on the same page. And those pages are the ones that are found in between the pages of the Holy Bible. So uh, here's this young guy. Now, Paul had retained a pretty close working relationship with Ephesus. It was this place that he had founded. And so he felt compelled to send this young man there to be their new pastor. Uh, and he was going to help him become a great leader by kind of enrolling him in what I call uh, Equip You, which is the title of this message series. And he's going to deal with some subjects that were uh, pretty specific to this church in, in Ephesus. But I kind of think some of this stuff can be found in, in churches here in the Branson-Hollister area as well. And in everything, uh, Paul said there are principles we can learn about how to master life in such a way that who we are and what we do uh, will bring meaning and fulfillment not only to our lives, but to the lives of the people that we come into contact. So for the next six weeks, what we're going to do, we're going to become Paul's disciples. And I can guarantee you that at no time will Paul ever say uh, to you, uh, you're fired or I'm going to kick you out of educate, equip you uh, university. He will, however, challenge us. And there's a lot of challenge in there. I've read through this book a couple of different times. And every time I come back, I'm thinking, do you really want to do this series? <laughs> because it's challenging not only to me and there's some stuff in here that I can guarantee you. Um, you might have questions about a little bit later because I'm not going to, like I said, not go very deep in some of these things. But today we're going to take a look at chapter 1 where Paul begins by talking about um, a gospel-driven life. uh, What that's all about and what the Christian life is all about. And and so as we kind of look at the prospect of becoming his apprentices, I guess that would be the correct word, or a disciple of Jesus, uh, we're going to begin by defining what our job as Christ followers is really all about. And so there are four different things I want to share this morning, so we're kind of getting out to the nuts and bolts of today's message. So here's the very first thing. It is about living a life of love. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied much about um, Christianity and comparing it with other religions, but... Do you know what separates Christianity from every other religion in this world? Well, very simply, it's love. Uh, And what separates us from the secular worldviews of today? Again, it's love. There is no other religion. We name the religion and and put aside uh, Christianity, and you will find that we place our emphasis on love as it's revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, Jesus himself said that the difference between Uh, His followers and everybody else was going to be love. And uh, you may remember John 13, 35, Jesus says to uh, his disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you do what? If you love one another. Now, I'm not going to ask you to get up and do a big group hug today and, you know, give each other that uh, brotherly Christian kiss and say, I love you. But, you know, we need to love one another. And one of the things that I enjoy about being at Restore is that uh, uh, small groups, large groups, it's always kind of been people who said, we really love being here and we love each other. See, love is also what separates good doctrine from bad doctrine. Uh, A characteristic of a lot of heresy, a a characteristic of a lot of heretics, um, 
Paul says is that they tend to emphasize kind of secondary issues and promote controversy. There's always something going on in their church that they feel they need to address. On the other hand, Paul says in verse 5, the goal of this command is to love. Love is the central thing. So in the religious marketplace, uh, there are all kinds of people who strive to make Christianity about many, many different things. They make it about politics. I watch a few uh, video clips every once in a while on YouTube or Facebook, uh, pastor's sermons, and I think, man, every Sunday they preach about politics. And I'm like wondering, uh, are you ever going to get around to Jesus in this series? And maybe uh, six months later, they get these big self-help ones. I mean, how you can pull yourself up by your bootstrap and you will live a life that is going to be thrilling and chilling. Uh, and there are some who preach nothing but doom and gloom. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. And uh, the sooner we get out of this hellish hole, the better we are. And I'm like, oh, dear God, you know, keep me from this stuff. And some of these people I just automatically delete and flock. I, I don't need to see that kind of negativity. I can produce that myself. Now, some people also try to reduce Christianity to simply knowing the right facts. Uh, Some structures, uh, detailed and complex theological systems based on obscure Bible references. Now, I know Jeff and I like obscure Bible references, but we're not going to build an entire religion on some obscure Bible verse that didn't even really come from the original Bible, but it's something we read in 1st Enoch one day. But they can build an entire church around that kind of nonsense. But Paul says the people who do this stuff have missed the the point of the Christian life because the Christian life is all about love. And he goes on to explain how we build this life of love in verse 5. He says the goal of this command is love, which comes from, and then he tells us where it comes from, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So if you want to grow in love, if you want to say, okay, 2023 is going to be the year of love. Now, we're going to go back to the 1960s. I already went through that one. You know, we are going to have all this love power and, you know, put daisies in our gun barrels and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to grow in love, it comes from three different things. One, it comes from a pure heart. That is a heart that wants one thing and one thing only, and that is that God be glorified. It also comes from having a good conscience. I mean, how do, how do sinners like you and I develop a good conscience? Well, the answer is your conscience is cleansed by receiving God's mercy, uh, by trying when possible to maybe rectify past problems, uh, or making a commitment just to live a, quote, holier life. And holy, I don't mean, you know, walking around with a halo on, goody two-shoes. I mean, holiness really means, I mean, that word is hagios, which means to be set apart. Uh, Have you ever been called different because you're a Christian? I've been called a religious nut. I've been called a holy roller. Uh, I've been, people say, what's wrong with you? (laughs) You But you're set apart. You're not quite the ordinary person. But it also comes from having a very sincere faith. Now, sincere faith is built on, you know, personal experience, due diligence. It's not just something you heard about that someone else had. It's something you make an effort to own yourself. This is my faith. You know, I've heard people say, well, I practice the faith of my grandparents. I thought, oh, dear God. Uh, (laughs) I hope your grandparents' faith was in Jesus Christ and you were following that and not just how your grandparents perhaps lived. See, it's when your faith 
is sincerely your faith. And not just what you heard, not just what you parrot. It's when your conscience is made good through God's mercy and there is a a longing for a holy life, a set-apart life, a different life. It's when your heart is focused only on giving God glory. Uh, I've certainly had people over the years come up and say, that was really a nice message. I learned something from an old elder of mine at Lord of Life, an old farmer by the name of John Olson. Because uh, I came up to him one day after I had him preach for me, and I said, John, this is a really good sermon. He said, I only gave you what the Holy Spirit gave me. And I always try to lock that in the back of my mind. I may not say that to you. Uh, I don't want you, I'm not making sure that you all get up and have to tell this is a phenomenal sermon or anything. But understand, it didn't come from me. It didn't come from somewhere else. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, See, that's kind of the first priority of the Christian life, to live a life of love. But here's the second thing Paul is telling young Timothy. He says it's also living a life based on mercy. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Even though I I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, there's not a one of us here today that should ever, ever lose sight of the fact that we are a product of God's mercy. I mean, there's just no other way to say that. Then we go back to the Old Testament. Psalm 103, King David uh, talks about this. He said, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Wow. Can you imagine every time you did a sin, God just kind of reached down and thumped you in the back of the head or sent a lightning bolt down? He's not treating us like we deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Iniquities are the crookedness of our life. In other words, God continually lets us off the hook. I mean, just think about that for a moment. All the, all the rotten, mean stuff maybe you've done in your life, God has let you off the hook. That's part of his mercy because he wants to extend his grace to you. Now, if God lets you and me off the hook, what should we also do? We should learn to let other people off the hook as well. We need to be willing to show other people the same mercy that we receive. See, Paul plainly admits in the text here that he's no better than anyone else. In fact, he said he was worse than anyone else. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. He was the worst one of the bunch. Now, I think he said that because he never met me. Well, actually, maybe I should have said he's never met you guys. <laughs> but you get Paul's point. He just says all of us, all of us, our lives are based upon God's mercy. And then he gives us two reasons why we ought to show mercy to other people. First of all, show mercy to others because we've received it. Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Show mercy because we need it. Matthew 5.7 from the Beatitudes, Jesus talking to, the, to everybody on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's just that clear. See, out, sometimes outside the church, uh, sometimes... Outside the church, uh, we think the Christian life is all about judging and condemning and looking down on other people. Uh, some inside the church do the same thing, that we have to somehow you know, categorize these people and say, no, I can judge them. But that's not what it's about. It's about mercy. 
So sadly, today's culture, um, I don't spend a lot of time hanging around deep into weird culture, but I know that our, our culture has accepted a couple of big lies. One lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you need to fear them or hate them. And I think some Christians have fallen into that. Just because their lives are different than ours, we need to be afraid of them, or maybe we just need to hate them. The second big lie is that to love someone means that you need to agree with everything they believe or do. That's also not true. I can still love you. I mean, both of those comments are just nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. I've had people tell me, uh, you know, I'm a so-and-so or I'm such in whatever category you want. And they kind of look at me, so, so what do you think? And I go, okay, aren't you going to have anything to say? I, what do you want me to say? Uh, well, aren't you a pastor? Uh, yeah. You have nothing to say about it? No, I'm, I'm acknowledging what you said was true. Um, would you, do you think it's right or wrong? I said, well, now if you want to sit down and have a discussion, we can talk about it. But I'm not going to say, oh, you're involved in this or that, you evil, wicked, bad, and nasty sinner, get the hell out of here. I'm not going to do that to you either. We need to be compassionate to show mercy. Here's the third thing we need to do. It's about living a life in pursuit of transformation. Verses 12 and 13, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Jeff, you'll probably remember this. When we first started the grind, we had somebody come in one day and ask something about, would you accept me if I said I was gay? You remember that conversation? You remember what you said to him? Yeah, but I'm going to add a word in there because a very important word. It says once I once was. It's a reference to the past. Paul was able to look uh, at who he used to be and who he is now. And so he could see the difference. And once he was a blasphemer, but now he's appointed in God's service. Once he was a persecutor of the church, but now he's a servant of the church. Once he was violent, uh, now he's a proponent of the gospel of, of love. I mean, I can go back to reunions in high school and college and people kind of go, are you the same guy we knew growing up? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> thank God I'm not. I once was, but now I'm not. There's something else. See, Paul is a classic example of transformation life. Uh, listen to Paul again in verses 15 to 16. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, look at it. He's going to give you the reason for this. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, when Paul here is talking about salvation, he's not just talking about a, your, your ticket to heaven. He's talking about a changed life. And I would suspect that virtually everybody who is here today has had their life changed in some way. You used to be this, but now you are this. There has been some change. So he's not just talking about 
avoiding uh, the punishment of hell. Uh, he's talking about being saved from the chains of the past. Whatever had you bound up in the past, um, being saved from the person you used to be and are now changed into the person that God wants you to be. Now, somewhere somebody has uh, summed up the Christian life this way. They said, I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. See, the Christian life is a life of transformation. We aren't the same as we once were. I mean, our prayer today, I mean, we could have come today and I said, okay, I've only got one thing to say, one thing to do. We're not going to sing anything. We're not going to hear anything. But we're all going to pray this simple prayer today. God, help me today to be more like Jesus than I was yesterday. Uh, Go on home. (laughs) We could have probably ended it that way. See, a difficult thing, though, sometimes for believers, for Christ followers, is to accept the fact that transformation, though, is a process. It doesn't just do it like that. Uh, it's often not an instantaneous event. We often kind of go back and forth between wanting change to happen immediately and not wanting change at all. We kind of go back and forth. One day we want to be perfect. Uh, the next day we want to hang out with our favorite sins again. Uh, but the road to, to transformation is a road that's traveled each and every day, one step at a time, focused on Lord. Now, there's a fourth part here. It's about living a life that goes the distance. Uh, every time I get a, my wife suggested to me this morning, she said, you realize next year in 2024, we'll be married 60 years. It's like, yikes. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden you think, well, and you start adding up your own age. <laughs> uh, somebody asked me the other day, how long are you going to be pastor at Restore? And I said, I have no idea. But I said, if I go another year, I'm going to, I'll, you know, I'm going to be creeping up. I'm going to be at 79 this year. I'm going to stick around another year. I'll be 80. I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, so you're going to go the distance. I said, I'm going to go until God calls me home. That's all I know. But see, Paul starts his letter with a powerful and provocative four-letter word. It's in verse 3. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. That little four-letter word, stay. Now, at the time that First Timothy was written, Paul and Timothy had worked together for about a dozen years. Uh, Timothy had traveled uh, with Paul um, and on some occasions. Sometimes he was Paul's troubleshooter. Uh, sometimes he was sent ahead to work out some problems in places like in Corinth and in Thessalonica and Philippi. But now here's young Timothy who finds himself in this new location in Ephesus, and he's facing a really tough situation. There was opposition. There was, there was false doctrine being taught in the church, uh, things that weren't even close to being biblical, uh, stuff that was based on myths and genealogies and controversial arguments. Um, I'm not going to delve into that. If you want to talk about that later and talk back time, we'll leave that up to Jeff to talk about that. There was some confusion about the role women should play in the life of the church. And there's that famous passage, women should keep silent in the church. We'll address that next week as to what that really means. Or what kind of person should be allowed to be in leadership? Who should be allowed to be an elder? Who should be allowed to be a trustee? Who should be allowed to do this and that? And Timothy was sent to this church to try to figure it all out and settle everything back down and get everybody back into shape. That's a pretty big job. 
And Timothy literally spent the rest of his life doing stuff like that, even to the point where he was martyred 30 years later in Ephesus for opposing the worship of the Roman goddess Diana. So by using this phrase, fight the good fight in verse 18, Paul is saying that it's not always going to be easy. There will be opposition to endure. There will be challenges that you need to face in life. There will be problems you need to solve. So you need to be prepared to stay, to stand fast. See, the Christian life is not just a summer job. Uh, it's a lifelong career. So how do you settle in for the long haul? Well, you commit to do the basics day in and day out. Well, what would that involve? Well, I don't like New Year's resolutions all that much because I tempted to break them the minute I get done writing them. But I wrote down a few things this last week. And um, I'll just toss them out just for your... You may want to do this, but every day I'm going to spend time in the Word. Now, you might say, well, don't you already? Well, yes, I do. But I want to continue to stay every day in the Word. And how you go about doing that, I, I don't care. I can suggest all kinds of different ways. I started reading a devotion book today called An Apple a Day, written by my friend Ken Hunter. And uh, every day he's got a scripture and a lesson in there. Uh, but I also have other ways of doing this because I'm going to need to read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and 3 Timothy and 4, 5, 6, but in the Word every day. To spend time every day in prayer, uh, every day to seek to somehow be transformed uh, in holiness, to, to be different, to be set apart, to not be the same, or consistently pursue one opportunity after another to serve the kingdom of God. I keep getting, when are you going to retire? Hey, until God calls me home. Uh, there's always an opportunity to serve God somehow, some way, somewhere, somehow. I don't care whether it's handing out some cookies to kids down here at White River or whether it's carrying groceries to somebody's house for them. There's ways to serve each and every day. Uh, and then every day to uh, involve myself in fellowship with other believers. I mean, it's good to hang out with with brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another. Even if we gathered together today and all we talked about is what we had for Christmas and what we ate on New Year's Eve and who won the football games, blah, 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 blah. We enjoyed one another's company. We encouraged one another's company. We may never have said a word of God to each other, and yet we are transformed by that time with each other. See, every day to, cons to consistently fellowship with people and every day to give myself to a life of love. See, now Paul, though, suddenly has a slightly different ending to this chapter after all this encouragement. Because he, started, he mentions two men at the end of this. Do you catch those guys before? Hymenaeus and Alexander. What did he say about those, those two guys? He said they had shipwrecked their faith. In prison, guys often talk about getting in a wreck. Yeah, Doc, I wasn't able to make it to your class because I got in a wreck last week. Well, they weren't driving cars around the prison. <laughs> they probably got into a fight somewhere in the dorms. But it said they had shipwrecked their faith. They had fallen away and, been, and had been handed over to Satan. Whoa, that's pretty heavy. Now, it doesn't mean that they were going to go to hell, for sure. But... This was an opportunity to practice 
church discipline. If I can use a couple of words that sound somewhat familiar to you, this was restoration in process. He was calling them out. And he said, you guys are wrong. You need to talk to these guys. They have shipwrecked their faith. And if they don't, if they don't get off that shipwreck, they are going to be Satan's tools forever. Find some way to restore them. Find some way. Don't condemn them. You've heard this often enough. We're not called to be condemners. We're called to be gospelers. Now, how does stuff like that happen in a church? How does it happen that people you turn out to be another Hymenaeus and Alexander? Well, I tell you that I think it happens because we, we begin to avoid the basics. It happens, doesn't happen all at once. It's kind of always a, a process of erosion. It happens little by little. I mean, that's why you need to settle in for the long haul. Uh, the Christian life is, is, is not a sprint. Uh, the Christian life is a, a marathon, and you need to prepare, prepare yourself to go the distance. And in becoming an apprentice, that's all what you need to know is what you're signing up for, just what the job entails. So if I'd summarize what we talked about just in chapter 1 today, what does success in the Christian life look like? Well, it's all about four things. It's living a life of love, following the pattern of Jesus. Living a life of mercy. We've been extended mercy. We need to extend mercy to others as well. To live a life in pursuit of transformation, that each day we, we, we grow and we change. And fourth, that pursuit of the finished line. I know standing in nursing homes over the years as a pastor, I've had people say, Dr. Kolb, how long do you think I'm going to live? And I said, well, probably until God calls you home. (laughs) I, I, I don't know the exact answer to that question. But to pursue the finish line. And then you hear those words, well done, good and faithful disciples. Well done, good and faithful members of Restore. Well done, good and faithful. Plug in whatever. Come on home. You've finished. May God bless us all in the pursuit of those four things. In Jesus' name, amen.